0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network.
1: Today on Government Matters, lawmakers in Congress are pushing to safeguard federal employees from future politically motivated executive orders that could strip them of their civil servant protections. And today, there are more than 2 million female veterans. That's nearly triple what it was a couple of decades ago. Since then, the VA has transformed the care it offers them. Then, the US and UK have a long and special relationship. But changing leadership in Britain could mean a shift in priorities for the allies. Government Matters starts right now.
0: From Washington DC and around the world, this is Government Matters. With Mimi Gergis.
1: This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gergis. On September 15th, the House of Representatives passed the Preventing a Patronage System Act. It's meant to shield federal workers from the return of Schedule F. Richard Loeb is Senior Policy Counsel at the American Federation of Government Employees. The union represents more than 700,000 federal workers. Richard, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you, Mimi. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Remind us what Schedule F is.
2: Schedule F was an executive order issued by former President Trump in October of 2020, which attempted to place a large number of career federal employees on an as-will employment basis, meaning they could be dismissed for any reason, or no reason at all, at the behest of their appointing authority, so their supervisor within an agency, or perhaps higher up in the, in the, uh, in the chain of command. Uh, the purpose of Schedule F, many people believe, was to politicize the civil service, uh, and certainly that was an aspect of it. But it also would allow an administration to hire people at will, and the estimates of the number of people who would be affected by this Schedule F order, uh, varied, but it was at least tens of thousands, and we calculated at the American Federation of Government Employees, AFG, that it could have been hundreds of thousands of people because of the definitions used in the executive order. But the executive order went beyond that. I think what many people missed in the order, because it was buried sort of deep inside, was that it also placed many existing types of federal positions on uh, a potential uh, at-will employment status. For instance, all attorneys in the federal government, administrative law judges would be placed on an at-will basis, which obviously affects the uh, independence and integrity of at least the executive part of the judiciary. Well,
1: well, that's what I wanted to ask you is what's the ultimate impact here to the operations of the federal government and, and the ability of the government to deliver services to the American people?
2: Well, uh, I think the, uh, the good news, of course, is that President Biden rescinded the executive order that uh, specified or created Schedule F. Uh, but the, the, the impact is that you would be placing uh, political and potentially patronage-type operations much further down into the food chain, if you will, of federal employment, and people could simply be removed for no reason at all. They disagreed with the administration. Perhaps they even agreed with the administration, but their supervisors just didn't like them. Maybe it was a personality dispute. Maybe they wanted to make room for somebody else they liked. It would have been the creation of an entire patronage system. Now, some people have said, oh, well, you can't have patronage you know, that far down at the bureaucracy. But I've been calling it patronage, maybe perhaps with both a large P and a small P. You'd have a system of uh, favoritism, um, hiring friends, possibly even relatives, perhaps they have to be a little bit distant under existing ethics laws, but it would create a system where everyone would essentially be on pins and needles uh, if they ran afoul of anyone in their chain of command.
1: Now, Richard, explain the difference between the accepted service and the competitive service.
2: Well, that's a great question, Mimi. Um, The competitive service is the traditional civil service that was created as a result of the Pendleton Act in the late 19th century. And uh, the Pendleton Act, of course, was enacted after President Garfield was assassinated by a disappointed job seeker. And the idea was that we would hire people based upon their actual merit. They, we created what, what many people call the meritocracy, a merit-based hiring system. And that's the the concept of the of the competitive service. Competitive service positions enjoy certain due process protections after successfully completing a certain amount of service. The accepted service, uh, and I'm almost quoting from the statute, is everything else. (laughs) If you're not in the, the definition of the accepted service uh, is that it's not in the competitive service. And there is no accepted service. There's literally hundreds, perhaps even thousands of accepted services. Positions are, are in the accepted service because they have either been placed in it by a statute or by a presidential order removing them from the competitive service.
1: So Richard, what would this legislation do? It's called the Preventing a Patronage System Act.
2: Well, the the, the concept of the law is that the existing accepted appointing authorities that are in statute as of uh, uh, just prior to the enactment of, or the issuance of Schedule F, would be frozen. Uh, and I, I believe that's about six different appointing authorities. It does not prohibit, however, Congress from establishing more accepted appointing authorities. And, I, and I, I'd be remiss if I did not point out that one of the concerns we have at AFG is while we certainly appreciate the fact that we have supporters in Congress who want to stop conversions of competitive service positions to the accepted service, there are many, many Schedule Fs that have developed through congressional action where agencies are created, or parts of agencies are created, or positions are created that are exempt from all civil service laws and uh, the amount of accepted service hiring authorities that have been created and are actually used for appointment seem to be growing quite rapidly.
1: You know, we, we both know the, the tremendous work that government uh, employees do on a daily basis, but when people say they, they want to, quote, take on the bureaucracy and drain the swamp, what does that mean to you?
2: Uh, I think it's a political slogan. Uh, that's supposed to, you know, get people's dander up in some way or another to, you know, to uh, deal with their frustrations about life in general. Uh, but I, I, I don't know that it's 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 meaningful other than just that to go to some sort of visceral emotional reaction that people are going through when you know in uncertain times, both in terms of economics, the changing world, uh, the pandemic, of course. So I think that's what it's really about.
1: Well, the legislation has passed the House. What's the likelihood it will pass the Senate?
2: I do don't I don't engage in political predictions on these things. Uh, certainly, we're hopeful that the the Senate will, will will seriously consider it.
1: And very quickly, Richard, any other legislation that you're watching that could uh, impact
2: federal workers? Uh, well, we're always looking for out for things like pay raises and, uh, of course, benefit changes. but uh, but I want to emphasize again that uh, if Congress is serious about protecting the competitive service, they will do what they can to actually make sure that positions are placed in the competitive service and not continue to allow the proliferation of accepted appointing authorities, as has been the case for the past several years.
1: All right, Richard, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you so much. Coming next, more women than ever before are joining the military. And in response, the VA is changing its services to better provide care for those female vets. We'll be right back. In 1994, Congress established the Office of Women's Health at the VA. Since then, women have become the fastest growing group of veterans. Dr. Patricia Hayes is the Chief Officer. She's also the 2022 Service to the Citizen Government Executive of the Year. Dr. Hayes, welcome.
3: Thank you. Good morning.
1: Can you talk about the creation of the Office of Women's Health and its mission?
3: Certainly, the Office of Women's Health has been around, as you said, for quite some time, but more recently we've been elevated to be able to really address the needs of the growing population of women veterans, You know, largely due to the large number, the 20% of the military is female now, and we need to be able to continue to ramp up to be able to provide the best care to the women coming to us following their military service.
1: Can you give me an idea of how large your organization is?
3: Well, right now today, there are 660,000 women receiving healthcare across our 150 medical centers and about 900 outpatient clinics. So we're one of the largest healthcare systems in the world and uh, it's integrated across the entire US. We have a women veteran uh, person, uh, particularly uh, set to help women veterans at every VA medical center, women veteran program manager, and we have women's health providers at every VA medical center.
1: And you say that the VA is unique in that it offers a, quote, whole health program. What does that mean?
3: Well, we have the kinds of things that everyone wants to have when you think about your whole person. So not only are you able to come and what we have one-stop shop for women, which means that you come to primary care and you can have your gender-specific care and all your other health care, like you can have pap smears, but you can also have treatment for diabetes or high cholesterol all by the same provider and then in addition we surround the veteran with looking at how you want to function in your life what makes you happy and we have uh, services available like yoga tai chi chiropractic and other things like art therapy or music therapy so that you can uh, really become the person that you want to be
1: The VA recently announced it will continue to provide abortion services, regardless of state policy. What's behind that decision?
3: The main reason why we did this uh, moving from former exclusion to now providing abortion is part of all of our health care. It's patient safety. We knew that with the changes after the Dobbs Supreme Court decision, that it was going to become uh, impossible in some states for us to provide full health care to women and so we changed our regulation to provide that in-house
1: and women often face different barriers in medical treatment and access what are some of those barriers and what more do you think the va can do to make access to health care easier
3: i think the greatest barrier for women veterans is not knowing that uh, they are entitled to care at the VA. You don't have to have served in combat. Uh, you don't have to have been deployed to be able to come to VA for healthcare. That's the greatest barrier over and over again. Women tell us they just didn't know we were here for them. And so we have a women veteran call center. And we have other means you go to va.gov and you can just click on there and get into eligibility and get an appointment. That's really the the challenge for us the outreach uh, to welcome women. We want you to know you belong at VA we want you to be able to come and get the excellent health care that we provide
1: you joined the va back in 1984 that was a long time ago how how (laughs) have things changed since then
3: you make me feel old but when i first was in the va there were only a few women veterans that were able to come in uh, we had one gynecologist that come came once every two weeks uh, we now have services at every va where we have women's health clinics and women's health providers uh integrated care and we really have built up as i said from those few veterans that were brave and came to the va to over a million women veterans touch VA services today.
1: There have been recent reports of women experiencing harassment while seeking care at VA facilities. What's going on there, Dr. Hayes? You
3: know, that's one of our big puzzles, Why, particularly that's one of our really big puzzles why would male veterans harass women when they come to the va we know that we address this with any number of uh, recent initiatives the secretary has taken a very strong stand the white ribbon campaign to stop harassment and now women are telling us that they do feel welcome and that we have changed the environment we've also set in a new reporting system allowing everyone to have access to someone who will hear their complaint and take action whether it's police action or other kind of action, right then that day and get back to them uh, so that we can change the culture of VA to be more inclusive across the board.
1: So what's your message to women vets?
3: My message is uh, you're very important to us. You've always volunteered for your service. Please come to VA, check us out. We want you to understand that you belong at VA.
1: And you recently won the 2022 service to the citizen award for government executive of the year what drives you to continue to do this work and what does that award mean to you
3: i feel so humbled by being named the government executive of the year uh, and you know our services um, continue my passion is really comes from my work with veterans they're in my heart Uh, veterans have been so important um in terms of the very fact that i work for veterans i wouldn't have this job without all of your sacrifice uh, as veterans so that's what keeps me going and we want to continue to improve our services and to hear from veterans about what we can do better
1: all right well dr hayes i appreciate your service and thank you so much for being on the program with us thanks for having me coming next the uk has a new prime minister and a new monarch what that could mean for the future of U.S.-U.K. relations. We'll be right back. Mm-hmm. President Biden met with the U.K.'s new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, for the first time since she was appointed. Sam Edwards is an associate professor of history at Manchester Metropolitan University. Sam, welcome to the program.
4: Thank you. Good to be with you.
1: So, before we talk specifics, do you think in general that the UK US relationship will fundamentally change?
4: I mean, I think it's been in a period of change for quite some time now, and that's connected to the the different personalities that have been in those leadership roles over the last uh, 10, 15 years or so. I think there are key fundamentals, though, that are still very much in place and still very much strong, especially in terms of the relationship between the U.S. and U.K. militaries and also intelligence agencies, which remains strong and has been strong for the past half-century or so, if not more.
1: So what is Liz Truss's stance on Brexit? And, And does that have the potential to impact her relationship with American leaders?
4: I think it absolutely does. Um, This is the big question now, I think, in terms of the U.S.-U.K. relationship. What is this government going to do with regards to Brexit? What noises is it going to make? Has it been making with regards to, for instance, the Northern Ireland Protocol? Because it's quite clear that President Biden remains committed to Northern Ireland Protocol, and that's something that this new prime minister is going to have to work work her way through as uh, as she tries to find a connection, a a level with, uh, with the president.
1: Can you uh, give us a little bit more um, information on that Northern Ireland deal? What's going on with that?
4: So this is the deal which was set in place to ensure that the connection to the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland remains smooth and that trade can continue um, unhindered even despite the fact uh, of Brexit. And clearly Biden is committed to that. He's, you know, his predecessor, President Bill Clinton, was key in brokering that deal originally in terms of the Northern Ireland peace process, in terms of the Good, um, Good Friday Agreement. And he's clearly committed to, um, to maintaining peace in the island of Ireland. And so that question of the protocol, what's going to happen, especially with regards to the noises that Prime Minister Johnson has previously made and some of the noises now Prime Minister Truss has made with regards to whether there's, there's flex there or what she might do with it. I think this is now the crucial, the key thing that they will perhaps um, broach.
1: Truss's predecessors um, both promised a trade deal with the U.S. after Brexit. But Liz Truss says that that's not her priority. So will there be a trade deal?
4: I think that unlikely, and it's quite clear that whilst that was something those in favour of Brexit pushed, and there were those tabloid headlines several years ago now saying that this would be possible, this would come quite quickly, it's quite clear that that's not the case. The noises coming from the Oval Office make that more than apparent. And most recently, I think we can see Prime Minister Truss kind of managing expectations and trying to downplay the idea that a trade deal will happen in the near future. I think it's some way off.
1: So if not trade, then what are Truss's priorities?
4: One imagines that a key priority now will be to establish something of a connection, something of a rapport within it with the president. She's fresh into the role, and personalities do matter. There needs to be something in the way of the chemistry between two leaders if they're going to make progress on the big issues of the day. So I would suspect that given the fact that a trade deal is some way off, um, TODAY'S MEETING WILL BE ABOUT UNDERSTANDING EACH OTHER, COMING TO SOME KIND OF SENSE AS TO HOW ONE ANOTHER IS GOING TO OPERATE, WHAT ARE THE KEY PRIORITIES FOR EACH GOVERNMENT GOING FORWARD.
1: THE U.K. ALSO HAS A NEW MONARCH, OBVIOUSLY AFTER THE DEATH OF QUEEN ELIZABETH II. DOES THAT CHANGE ITS DIPLOMATIC RELATIONSHIP WITH THE
4: U.S.? I THINK IT DOES, AND THIS IS WHY THIS IS BOTH A FASCINATING BUT ALSO A CHALLENGING MOMENT FOR THE U.S.-U.K. RELATIONSHIP, FOR THAT much vaunted SPECIAL RELATIONSHIP. We've got a moment in time where there's a new prime minister, and she's, you know, poles apart politically from the president, and we also have a new monarch. And whilst Prince Charles, now King Charles, has a long-running history with the United States, he's been there many times, first in 1970. Nonetheless, this is a new moment for the king. He's having to, to assume a mantle. And um, You know, Queen Elizabeth was a, a polished diplomat over the course of 70 years, and he's now got to take that up and to do his part. As monarch in uh, in maintaining uh, the close U.S. UK connection,
1: I wonder, Sam, what you think about you know the, the just the idea of this special relationship. Is it time for that to be updated? I mean, this is this has gone on for a long time, and and what are the two sides really getting out of that
4: relationship? Uh, That's a fantastic question. I mean, the special relationship has been declared dead many times over the last 40 or 50 years, and yet it kind of lingers. It remains, if only at times, in ritual and rhetoric. But I think this is a moment in time where the changed circumstances, the changed... Uh, in in power and resources and global standing of the two powers means the special relationship does sound increasingly something of the past. And I think it's difficult to say that it is still here as it once was 40, 50 years ago in in, in the here and now. That's not saying, though, that there aren't still some close connections, again, amongst the the military and intelligence agencies just this year, U.S. Marine Corps F-35 fighters deployed to the decks of the Queen Elizabeth II aircraft carrier. That suggests that there's still a close connection there, but whether we can legitimately talk about a special relationship now, as was the case with Winston Churchill in 1946, I think that's questionable.
1: And finally, you know, we've been talking about the two governments and and the leaders, but I wonder how the British citizens are reacting to the U.S. and if their attitudes have changed recently.
4: That's another great question. What is that sense of connection amongst Americans and Britons more broadly? I think um, many British people retain a good quota of affection for Um, for their American cousins across the pond. I think it's certainly the case that the current presidential administration is more popular than was the predecessor administration. Um, And there's clearly lots of connections between the two peoples in terms of travel and trade and education as well. So I think if there are two peoples on the world that do have some kind of close connection in terms of regularity of meeting, I think you could probably say that of Americans and Britons.
1: All right, Sam, we appreciate you joining us from the UK. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest interviews. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.
0: Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems.
1: I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government?
5: What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that In the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical.
1: All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you.
5: Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you.
0: Thanks for listening. Our Daily Show is produced by Katherine Roloff. Our Managing Director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our Web Editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.